If you haven't been given a sheet, Carolyn has some uh, in the back, and then we're just going over some definitions, which might be helpful as we're going through it. But I want to start us off by listening to a really just a one-minute clip. This clip is by um, Pastor Art Azurdia, and while he does not mention the term apologetics, I think he sets the tone for it. Um, so I'm going to just turn this around. I'm going to turn it up. Hopefully it will be loud enough. Um, some of you may have already heard it, but again, I think it's going to be helpful for us. do not exist for ourselves. We exist for the advancement of the kingdom of God. We exist for the gospel. My dear friends, the sphere of our mission is the world. And I want to tell you something. This does not frighten me. I believe with all of my heart that it is a great day to be a Christian in the world. I don't despair of the condition of the world. I despair, quite frankly, of the condition of the church, but I don't despair of the condition of the world. It is a great moment in history to know the gospel because we're living in a day when lives are being destroyed by sin like never before and the answers belong to us. The truth is ours to make known. The truth that can conquer any perplexity that modernity or post-modernity can throw at us. I don't want my children growing up in a defensive posture. You've got to be kidding. I want them growing up in an offensive posture. We have the gospel. So I think this sets a tone with that, this clarifying to us that if you're a, a born-again Christian, you have the truth. And the truth has been given to you to make known to the world. And so I think that's what really apologetics is all about. And so we're going to be kind of going through this for about eight weeks. And so as just I want to give you a brief outline first of what you can expect for each week. This first week, what we're going to be looking at is the who of apologetics, what is apologetics, what it is not, and then the different methods employed within that task. I will also be looking a lot um, at different fallacies. And I know some of it may seem a bit boring at first, but I think it's going to be helpful so that when we get into the practical applications of giving an answer to this group or this group, we're prepared ahead of time to know how to do that more effectively. Uh, the second week, what we're going to be looking at, we'll do a recap of some follow-up questions. We're also going to be looking in and examining some different philosophical arguments that have been used. We're going to be looking at some answers to why you believe. We're going to look at, uh, we'll continue if we don't finish on fallacies. We may look at some different historical accounts. And three, week three, we're going to be looking at what I would call gospel apologetics. We're going to be kind of tracking through the life of Paul and his defense of the gospel. We're going to look at, again, the who of apologetics, and then we're going to look at more the lifestyle. We're going to look at the action and the attitude of one involved in this task. And then each of these weeks, provided time gives us enough time, we'll, ha we'll do a Q&A. Um, week four, we're going to be looking at the myth of neutrality. We're also going to look at the myth of natural theology and different types of revelation. Again, followed up with the Q&A. Week five, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of knowledge, epistemology. We're also going to be looking at the doctrine of sin. 
and then we're going to look at prayer and how that is incorporated with this task. Week six, we're going to be looking at faith. What is faith? What, what is faith not? We're going to be looking at evidences. We'll also be looking at what is called a problem of evil and being proactive in apologetics. Uh, week se- and now, the last two weeks of this, week seven, what we're going to be looking at, after we've gone all through this, we're going to be looking at how to be more effective in giving an answer to what I would call nominal Christianity. Nominal, nominal just means in name only. So the, any group that would affiliate themselves with some form of Christianity, even if they are definitely not, might include how do we give an answer to Mormons? What about Jehovah Witness? What about some involved in Roman Catholicism or the Seventh-day Adventists? Anyone that would say some form of Christianity will hopefully be able to look at that and provide to them an answer. We may even do some uh, Q&A and role play with that. Week eight, we're going to be kind of doing the same thing, but we want to be prepared not only to give those groups an answer, but what about those groups outside of it? What about Islam? What about those who would call themselves an atheist or an agnostic uh, or a Baha'i? We're going to maybe look at quickly some Eastern religions. How do we give an answer to them? Are they the same answers? Um, And so that's just kind of what we're going to be looking at through the upcoming weeks. Uh, Now, this being said, I really want, before I get into what apologetics is, I want to get in, I want to make a statement, and that is this. Apologetics is an imperative for every Christian. I believe it is from the youngest to the oldest. I believe any and every person who professes Christ should be able to give a a basic defense or an answer of why they are a Christian. If I ask you, why are you a Christian? No matter what you tell me, you are now involved in the task of apologetics, even if your answer is not a good one. And so I say, we want to be more effective. And so I invite you to open your Bible with me. I want to go to 1 Peter 3.15. Yes, sir. No, I think think it'll be okay. I think we're good here. Now, as I'm reading, there's kind of three questions I'm going to be addressing in this. And that is the who... Of apologetics. First Peter, Peter three fifteen. Okay, because I think this answers for us the who of apologetics. I think this verse tells us the how to of apologetics and the when. And so first Peter three fifteen. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, and this is more the how-to, yet do it with gentleness and respect. If you want to know how to do apologetics rightly and in a way that honors God, do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, And I think this is, again, for this verse tells us, who it applies to, all those who name Christ. And then it says, and I think it also answers the when, always. Always be prepared. Uh, another text says, be always prepared in and out of season. And so now I want to look at, 
what is apologetics? As I started researching this, there are there is a host of different definitions to apologetics. I mean, depending on who you ask, you might have a different definition. You might have a, a 20 different definitions. So I want to give what I believe the most basic one, and that is this. Christian apologetics is a field of Christian theology that aims to present a defense or an answer for the Christian faith. The term apologia specifically means speaking in defense. Now, I want to see how it applies. I believe it is a biblical mandate for every Christian to advance and defend the gospel of Christ as they live the Christian faith in the power of the Holy Spirit by exposing and subjecting all contrary beliefs to Christ's revelation as found in Scripture. And so now that we kind of have a basic understanding of apologetics, I want to go over what apologetics is not. Because I think so often people get involved in arguments and they think that they're speaking about apologetics when they're not. And so I want to first by state by it is not the art of saying I'm sorry. We think of when we apologize, that's we're saying I'm sorry for something. Rather, it's more giving an answer or a reason for why you did something. And so I'm not sorry that I'm a Christian, but I should be prepared to give an answer why I am. So it's not just saying I'm sorry. Now, it is also not apologizing for certain events past, present. Example, someone comes to you and they say, well, what about the Crusades? What about Jim Jones? What about the Salem witch trials? What about this or this or this? Now, sometimes those are very good questions. And I think they can be not even used to sidetrack you. They can be legitimately concerned about these things. And yet sometimes, often, they are used to sidetrack you. They'll say, well, I'm not going to be a Christian because of all these other past things. And so apologetics is not trying to get into defending every event, good or bad. Because what happens, someone brings those up, and by default, someone says, well, okay, well, what about all the hospitals that Christians come up with? What about the fact that we are commanded to feed and clothe homeless people? So what happens is you get into, you know, uh, trying to compare good and bad, but that's not the task of apologetics. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have, a, you know, a good answer, but I would say that's not apologetics. Nor is it forcing unbelievers unto submission, neither by the individual Christian or by the state. It is not arguing about how many angels can stand on a pin or if God can make a rock so big he can't lift it. And to, I also want to direct your attention here to 2 Timothy 2.16. 2 Timothy 2.16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. When you stand hours upon hours trying to get into a back and forth, the text tells us, I mean, it's leading them into more ungodliness. So we want to be careful about what we do when we start trying to give an answer for a lot of silly questions. And I would also say that it is not arguing about subjects within orthodoxy. And what I mean by that is you have two fellow Christians, they're arguing 
or discussing about the modes of baptism. It's not that. It's not arguing about end times. It's not arguing about different types of church government. That's not what it is. Again, what it is, giving a reason for the hope that you have. It's not going over all these subjects, even though I believe those subjects are, are very important. Still not the task of apologetics. And so now I want to look at the different apologetic methods or methodologies. And so I want to begin by giving us just a quick definition of what a methodology is. A methodology pertains to how we do something, what the procedure entails. How one defines something will dictate the procedure of implementation. And so, if you would, open your Bible again to Colossians 3.17. Colossians 3.17. Because I think this, again, tells us how to do apologetics. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The task of apologetics should be for his glory. It's not so that you can pride yourself in how smart you are. Everything that you do is for him. And I include in this the task of apologetics. And so when we do that, I think we need to start with his word and be saturated in his word. And so now that and so that we we kind of looked at that verse, I want to kind of go over some of these different methods or different terms. Um, some say, well, there's only three different ways, you know, classical, evidential, presuppositional uh, to me, and then there could be subgroups within those. So really what I want to do is just kind of look at them. At this time, I'm not really going to be promoting any one particular view. I just want to make you aware that they are out there and that you have a better understanding of kind of what they mean. You hear a term, is it a... Is it something to be employed? Should we kind of look away from it? What do they mean? So I want to start with classical apologetics and what it means. Typically in classical apologetics, it stresses the rational arguments as evidence. A proponent of this would be R.C. Sproul, Augustine, Aquinas. Now this is also employed through the cosmological and the teleological view, which we're going to look at here in just a minute. But that's kind of what it is. It stresses a rational. You think of something, what's rational, and you go about your task that way. Okay? And then I want to look at another term is evidential or evidentialism. And that would stress the empirical use of evidence for the existence of God. Empirical or empiricism simply refers to that which is your senses. So if I say, I can prove to you this chair exists, I look at it, and that's how I prove it. Or I can demonstrate that something was done because I can have recorded it, and then you can hear it. I, and this is the argument, I, I know this is because I can feel it. And I know it's a table because I know what a table feels like. So that would be the idea of evidentialism. Now, the, a third one is what is called, and now um, a proponent of that would be Josh McDowell. You go through his book, Evidence Demands a Verdict, you can go and see how he uses those. A third would be what is called cumulative case. And that is, it is a method that argues for the 
existence of God by demonstrating that it is the more reasonable view in correspondence with all the other views that have been given out there. Proponent of this is William Lane Craig. If you think about, if you were to go to a court of law and you have to give a defense for something, usually the better attorney doesn't present just one evidence. He tries to build his case on different things. Maybe it's rational, maybe it's physical. And so that is what it's called. You're trying to build a case on different types of evidences. Um, a fourth one is also called reformed epistemology. Again, epistemology just simply refers to knowledge. And this is very similar to what has been labeled presuppositionalism. I think presuppositional is just a little bit broader term. And so reformed epistemology aims to demonstrate the failure of objections other than that of theistic belief. They seek to defend faith as rational without empirical evidence because of the sense of the divine. Now, this, and John Calvin was a big proponent of that. Presuppositional apologetics argues that unless one assumes the Christian God, then the foundation is not sufficient for there to be knowledge of anything. Everyone has core commitments. Scripture is the framework through which all experience is interpreted and all truth is, not, and all truth is known. Uh, you're probably familiar with some of the proponents of that, Cy Kate. Uh, Van Til, Bonson, Clark, Francis Schaeffer, you can kind of go through the list. Some of them have varying views within that own camp. Uh, but I think it's important, even if you don't uh, like the other views that I've mentioned, it's important to know what it is and why they believed it. So that you don't latch on to one group without looking, at least looking and having a proper understanding of those views. Because I think it, it would be terrible if you start misrepresenting a group, even if you don't like that group, at least you ought to be able to explain what they believe and why. And so then, and now that I mentioned those groups, I kind of want to look at maybe some subgroups within those camps. The first one being the cosmological argument. And that, here's what it means. It means they would argue that the existence, that they would argue that the existence of the universe demonstrates that God exists, namely being the first cause. Here's an example of what this looks like. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause. And so that's what it argues for. If something has a cause, then they would say that would prove the cosmological argument. Now, the teleological argument would be this. It would be an argument from design or argument from purpose. And it, it argues that there is a purposeful design in the world around us, and a design requires a designer. Think about it. If you ever made a call or received a call, sometimes you may hear, what was the purpose of your call? Right? That, to me, that's kind of helpful in learning the teleological argument. Now, here's an example of this. When you see a watch you know that it tells time by design rather than by chance. You didn't even know you didn't see that watch being put together. You know it didn't accidentally come into being. Now the ontological, this is an argument that argues the very concept of God 
demands that there is an actual existent God. Some of the questions within ontological argument is this. What is the nature of being? What is existence? Is existence a property? And what I mean by property, an attribute. Not necessarily talking about a physical property, but an attribute. The glory of God would be an attribute. Now, what does an object, when does an object go out of existence as opposed to merely changing? How do properties of an object relate to the object itself? How does glory relate to God himself? Those questions would be within the realm of an ontological argument. Okay? Moral argument, or the apologetic typically employed through this, argues that if there are any real objectively valid moral values, then there must be an absolute from which they derive. You see this used a lot within the classical argument. You know, if I say, why is this bad? How do you account for, you know, rape, slavery, all these things being bad and then getting into a rational reason, okay? The transcendental argument argues that all of our abilities to think and reason require the existence of God. So we've kind of looked at just some different groups. What I would also recommend, if you want to know more about it, and because we don't have time, you could go on to whatever, you know, Wikipedia, Theopedia, whatever you want, and just kind of look at kind of a chart of different examples and how they're used. Okay, that would be kind of a, a simple way of saying, okay, I see how this is used, I see how this is used. Uh, polemics is simply the branch of Christian theology devoted to refuting of errors. Okay. So now, I want to look at some fallacies used in applying apologetics or logic. And again, as I mentioned earlier, this may be a little bit boring, but again, I think, if it's, I think it will be helpful in developing how we're going to answer someone later. Because I know, I'll point the finger at myself, I know I, I, I've been... A, guilty of pretty much all of these at one time or another. And I want to make sure that I don't do it. Uh, and I want to make sure that you understand when it's happening to you. And so the first one is, and this is, uh, if you have a sheet, this is what Carolyn gave out in the beginning. The first one is what is called an ad hominem. And this is attacking the individual instead of the argument itself. So what does this look like? Someone typically employs this when they start to lose an argument. So what does that look like? You're so stupid. You're fill in the blank, right? You're, you live in the South, you're brainwashed. That's how they begin their argument. Well, if you hear you're referring to the person rather than the argument, you know they're probably guilty of this. And so to me, that's you want to make sure that you shift that from the person to the argument. How, we can be caught up in this when the Bible tells us to we ought to destroy every argument that sets itself up against God. Notice, we're destroy the argument. So how do we go from destroying the argument and making sure we don't destroy the person? And so that's what we want to be attentive to. Uh, the second one is an appeal to pity. This is urging the hearer to accept the argument based on an appeal to emotions. This typically is what we see being guilt-driven. What does this look like? Well, this. I hope you like my proposal, 
because it took me a year to do it. And I'll be crushed if you don't like it. Notice, I, I'm telling you how long it took me. I'm telling you my feelings are going to be hurt if you don't accept this. And sometimes this is even within the church. We show maybe picture slides of people starving in a country, and we say, this is why you ought to go. Now, that could be a motivator, but ultimately we ought to do something, again, back to that text, for the glory of God, not because we've been driven by guilt to do it. Uh, the a third one is an appeal to the popular. It's urging the hearer to accept a position because a majority of people hold to it. Here's an example. Look how many Christians do this. Look at how many Christians pass the plate at church, and therefore we ought to do it, right? It's, it's, and what is this? Another way, now this is employed also by a lot of atheists, and they'll say, well, mo, or scientists say, most scientists say this, therefore you need to accept it because that's what's accepted by most scientists in the academia field. And I would say, no, let's look specifically to the argument itself. An appeal to, to tradition. Trying to get someone to accept something because it has been done or believed for a long time. We have been doing this forever, so we just need to continue to accept it. The Roman Catholic Church is very much guilty of appealing to tradition. Hmm? Yeah. <laughs> um, a fifth one is what is called cause and effect. People assume that the effect is related to a cause because the events to occur together. And so they say, look, uh, here's an example. Someone's driving a car, and they were guilty of, let's say, texting and driving. They're in a car accident. So we assume automatically that the texting caused the accident, when in fact, it actually may have caused it. Actually, what could have happened is the brakes totally went out. So we don't want to assume something just because two things were happening at the same time. There are many factors that could have caused that car accident. So we want to be careful in examining all that's given to us rather than just assume. Okay. Uh, here's the fallacy of division. It is assuming that what is true of the whole is true for parts. Here's an example. A Boeing 747 can fly across the ocean. A Boeing 747 has engines. Therefore, it can be flown with just one engine. You see how people will assume what's true for the whole is true for the parts. And I would say again, this is a fallacy. Another one is called the fallacy of equivocation. And that is using the same term in an argument in different places, but the word has different meanings. Here's an example within Christendom, within the Bible itself. People assume that the term all always means to every single individual, when in fact it may apply to all people for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then there may be other instances where the all is referring to a specific people group. Okay? The word, I think if we understand, if we go to the origin of the word gay, originally it meant happy. We know it means something altogether different today. <laughs> um, another term could be Israel. So when you're arguing Israel, is it ethnic? Is it national? Is it spiritual? And so you want to clarify your terms in advance so that you know 
what they're talking about rather than, again, assuming you know what they're talking about. Okay? A false dilemma, and this happens a lot, employ both, both Christians and non-Christians alike. And this is giving two choices when in actuality there could be more choices possible. You say, well, you're either this or this, right? You're either a brainwashed Christian or you're just <laughs> ignorant of all what they teach. And they give you two choices as if you could only pick from those two choices. There's several reasons. And so when so you ought to be careful about doing that yourself when, when there's actually many more reasons why someone could be this or this, right? You don't go to church because you, you hate God. Is that the truth? It could be, but it could be that they're bedridden and they'd love to go to church. So we want to make sure that, that uh, we're careful in that, okay? Um, genetic fallacy, and this is attempting to endorse or disqualify a claim because of the origin or irrelevant history of the, the claim. Um, again, going back to, you, I think you ought to examine the argument and, not, and you could say, well, because this guy holds to this view, I'm just going to assume everything he says is wrong. No, I don't think we ought to do that at all. Listen to what he says. And this is very careful. With, and this kind of goes in with poisoning the well. And that is presenting negative information about a person before he speaks so as to discredit the person's argument. Right? If we, and that's we kind of come up with, well, this person holds to this. They believe this. They believe this. Therefore, they're going to be wrong on every subject. No. We want to listen to the argument itself. Um, this is now another term is red herring. This is introducing a topic not related to the subject at hand. Imagine we are talking about the law, right? Whether it be um, laws within the Bible, constitutional laws, bylaws within a church, right? And so we're discussing these laws. Someone doesn't like hearing the term law. So they say, well, you must believe that we're saved by abiding to the law. Well, that's not it at all. Talking about it doesn't have anything to do with thinking what we're saved or what we're saved for or by. You can be discussing a subject, and what happens, someone doesn't like what you're saying, so they introduce really a, a different subject altogether differently. This is, you can kind of see this in what's called a straw man argument. It's producing an argument about a weaker representation of the truth and attacking it. Um, you know, someone may not, you know, you start, again, kind of using that same format. You start talking about law, and maybe you're just talking about constitutional law or biblical law. Someone comes in and says the same very thing and then says, well, we're under grace, so therefore a church should have no bylaws. You know, stuff like that. I, I think that's, you're not recognizing the very specific topic you're talking about. Um, now, I want to go over kind of a, a couple quick things. They, I would say that they are not fallacies, per se. They could be. And the first one is what is called a loaded question. What is a loaded question? Well, to me, a simple definition, a loaded question requires a loaded answer. And what I mean by that is that it requires a more developed Answer. It's not a, an answer you can just answer with yes or no. It's something you may have to give a quick little history of what you're talking about before you can go into something. Um, 
what is an open-ended and closed uh, question? Open-ended is a question that you cannot answer with yes or no. If I ask you, um, what's your favorite color? You say blue. Well, that can't be answered, what's your favorite color, with yes or no. And so, a closed-ended question would be yes or no. Is Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and life? Yes or no. You know, it's just a flat-out yes or no. It's not, well, you know, he could be if and all that. Um, another one is begging the question. And this is a simply making a statement as a matter of fact within the question itself. And so you kind of direct that question assuming something. And this can be done intentionally or unintentionally. And so I would say when asking a question, how that might look like is if a non-Christian says something to the effect, they kind of give you an attribute of God that's not real and then say, well, how could you, you know, how could you do this since God didn't save all the babies in Noah's flood? How could you love a God like that? Now, there is some truth within that question, but there's an attitude within it. It's hostility toward God. And so it's not a one thing. I don't think it's a, and that's, it goes back to kind of a loaded question, you know. And um, another one real quickly is kind of what's been labeled traditionally as no true Scotsman. I'm going to call it no true Christian type of dilemma. And how that looks like is someone will say, no, no tr you know, if I were to give an example and I say, It's acceptable, let's say, to watch a PG movie. And then I say it's accept, but if you watch a PG-13 movie, you're borderline backslidden. You know, maybe you're lukewarm. But no true Christian we know would never watch an R-rated movie. What have I done? Well, I've told you up front, it's assumed that no true Christian could. Now, I'm not saying that they should or even have the freedom to. What I am saying, though, is that it, it, it's I think very evident that a Christian could watch it and still be a Christian. Whether or not they should or not is an altogether different subject. So we want to make sure that when we say no Christian would do this, we know Christian sin. So we'll say no true Christian would ever lie. Is that true? They do sin. And so I want to make sure that we, we have a proper understanding when we say no, or if someone else tells you no true Christian would do this. Would they? Well, we've seen lots of Christians do lots of bad things and lots of good things. Um, and so with just a, the little bit of time that we do have in each, I hope to really, because uh, time, is to do a Q&A of, of each week. And so what I've developed here is 10 questions. And I know as we're going through this, you're probably going to have a lot of questions. Um, and because of time constraints, we probably won't be able to get to them. But what I would recommend and encourage you to do is if you want to write down your question and give it to me, you can either put your name there or if you want to leave it anonymous, you can. Um, I can't promise that I will answer it, but I can attempt to uh, if time is there to do it. Um, and so some of these questions um, are going to pertain to what we just looked at. One of them being, and, I'm gonna, and what I'd like to do is Ask the question, give a quick answer, and then open it up and see what you think. How does apologetics help Christians? I'm going to give you a few quick answers. To know, to better know their faith and share it more effectively. To answer people's real questions about our hope. 
to have influence in the public square in all areas of life, to prevent doctrinal apostasy within the church, and to grow in the knowledge of Christ, and to love God with not just our heart and soul, but actually with our mind as well. Um, can you think of any areas where it's helped you? Or how does it help people? I think it maintains a, um, a succinct answer for those common um, accusations we receive as Christians against our faith. But it also helps to uh, keep the church pure mm -hmm. in that there is a system of thought that we can coherently explain to uh, maybe younger believers or maybe those that are being enticed by false doctrine to sure. keep the church pure and keep them sound in the faith. Here's another question. Is apologetics defensive or offensive? Can it be both? Again, Boeing, you know, if I go back and say, well, it's either defensive or offensive, I've just been guilty of one of the things I just said. I think it can be both um, because of time. I don't know, we can't really go through it. But sec if you're having, if you're taking notes, you can go to 2 Corinthians 10, 5 and 6. And this tells us essentially to destroy every argument. To me, we can say that is an offensive position. We are to go to the offensive, destroying these arguments. Again, the argument's not the person. Philippians 1, 7 speaks of a defensive posture in apologetics. Second Timothy 4.16 gives us another a defensive idea. Okay. Another question, what are some responses we can provide when we don't know the answer? If, go ahead. Go see your pastor. <laughs> That's one. <laughs> Any others? No, go ahead. connection like if you say hey I'll get that answer for you and follow up with you via email or whatever That's what I do. okay yeah. good deal One thing I thought of, there's a couple ways, and there's one like what Kim was doing. I'll follow up with you. You might even tell him, "Hey, that's a great question. I hope I hope to have the chance to follow up with you on it." Because in that way, even though I say defensive, that doesn't mean you're defensive as a person. You can lovingly, and I think you should, follow up with them. Now, this can. Now, I'm also going to make a next statement. It can seem almost argumentative, but I think. Really what happens is it tries to get away from a rabbit trail. 
And this is, and you can pretty much ask this question to anything they can throw at you. If you start to go say, well, what about the Crusades, right? What about the fact that some witches were burned and they want to go on and on and on? Let me ask you, what does that have to do with your sin against God? I, I mean, you can, there may be, they may have done some terrible things or they may be justified in what they did. But you know what? We're talking personally to this person. And I wasn't there in a lot of these things, so I don't have you know, a comprehensive answer to everything. But I am talking to you, and I want to know what that subject has to do with your personal sin against God. So what you've taken a subject, and you can tell them that's a good question, but my friend, what does that have to do with your sin against God? Think of any question someone can throw at you. What, you know, is the world really only six to 10,000 years old? Or are you so, you know, are, are you really that dumb of a Christian to believe that? You know, did you even graduate from high school? What, I mean, surely you're not stupid enough to believe that, right? They've gone into these fallacies, and yet you don't even necessarily have to say, uh, get into argument. Well, you mean you believe it's millions of years old? How stupid is No, don't do that. You can just go back to their sin. What does the age of the earth have to do with your sin against God? Is the age of the earth an important topic? Sure. But that's not really my objective in apologetics. Nor is it arguing about all the, the misuse of spiritual gifts and all that. No. Let's just get back to the, the issue at hand. Their sin against God and how they can be justified you know, by the God that they sinned against. And so to me, if you don't know the answer, don't think that you got to hide at home until you get the answer or you just say, well, ask my pastor. You know, you can still get back into what is it. Did you have a question, Molly? Well, I was just going to say that sometimes you can tell people, if I answer all your questions, will that change your belief in God? A lot of people say, no, I wouldn't believe even if you answered all my questions. Right, I mean, and they'll tell you that. And even if they said yes, I still probably wouldn't believe them. And the reason being is because I believe God has to regenerate them. So I can provide, because if we look at the life of Jesus, I mean, uh, you know, the, the king that he was, or the ruler that he was talking to, he said, I was almost persuaded. Who is the greatest apologist in the world? Christ. You know, so we can give the best answer and still not going to lock it. And they may try and use it to justify their sin. So I'm just going to go back to the matter at hand. Um, I have several other questions, and I want to think just because of time here. Well, can I address something? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sure. When I was just a baby in Christ, and uh, I didn't know what Seventh-day Adventists were, uh-huh. a guy at work was one, and, and you know we were talking about Christian stuff earlier, and then I was like, wait a minute, why, why didn't you go to church on Saturday? Why? And then that started, mm-hmm. you know, the conversation. They got me to dig in the, in the Word of God. They got me to... to research what he believed in, what he was explaining to me. And um, so I think it is important for someone to ask questions and then get involved in, in the conversation. Sure. Even if you don't agree, mm-hmm. you know, those things are important to know. Why, why are we different? Why, you know, he's claiming to be a Christian, but he does it on Saturday. Right. That's all I knew. Sure. And then I was going to another friend, and uh, he was like, yeah, that's not right. He <coughs> will go on Saturday. It's not, you know, this and that, it's not mandatory, and Mark of the Beast, all right. 
And come to find out, he's, um, he believes in that he's a pretty good baptizer, you're not saved. Okay. So even him, he had something a little different. Mm -hmm. So we got in a conversation, and it just kept going, and everything was peaceful and stuff, but you know, it, it does cause you to, to, to dig in the Word sure. more and research more, even online or with other, other friends. And, uh, and I asked him if he could talk to the Seventh-day Adventists. And he was like, no, I don't like to get in those long conversations. <laughs> I just kind of stay away from that. I go, okay, you know, I understand. So, but it, it does help. And it, mm -hmm. it helped me out understanding both of them. Sure. Jason, would you agree on that same note? Would you agree that it's it's a good idea to, and I know this is a long apologetics, but say you're not familiar with like the Jehovah Witnesses mm -hmm. and the Seven Day Adventist beliefs. Would you say as a Christian, it's kind of, I mean, yeah, we know the Word of God, and we we can just use one thing that's false, and, mm -hmm. then, and that just totally throws out absolute truth in Christ, right, mm -hmm. in the Bible. But would you say it's effective and it's a good way? Um, to witness is by having somewhat of a little bit of knowledge of the Jehovah Witness belief or the Seven Day Adventist belief, Mormons and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. I think like any subject, the more you know about it, the better you're going to be equipped and be helpful to them. That being said, I think you can be very effective and not know anything about what their uh, subject matter teaches. That and this is how I come to that conclusion. Uh, many of you are familiar with Tony Miano. He used to be a police officer. And he said they did not spend hardly any time examining fake bills. Rather, they examined the real dollar bill. Because the more you examine the truth, the more you're saturated with the words of Scripture, the more you're able really to you know, refute anything out there. But I think it is helpful in getting clarity what they believe. That way you know kind of which scriptures to use accordingly. I guess maybe if, say, a babe in Christ, I just think that, you know, in, my, in the beginning when I was saved, I had a Jehovah, a Jehovah Witness lady come mm -hmm. to my door, and it was so hard for me to turn her away because she was so kind and, <laughs> and sweet. And, and I kept standing on the truth and what I did know. I didn't mm -hmm. have a whole lot of knowledge, but I felt... Um, we have just a few minutes, and, and so I kind of want to end, even though I have several other questions, um, because I think this will be helpful. And this is kind of twofold. What hinders the use of apologetics? This being said, if you or I, if we were role-playing, and I asked you what role would be easier to play, the believer or the unbeliever? My question to you is no matter what role you pick, why did you pick that role? A lot of people 
if they get into the role, you know, they're role playing either apologetics or evangelism and all this. Typically, they first default to the role of unbeliever. And why is that? Well, I'll say for me, before, it's because I assume that an unbeliever doesn't have to give an answer for what they believe. And so it's much easier just to keep asking questions and never have to give any real objective answer to anything. So how hard is it just to keep throwing out question after question to justify your sin, right? And that's why a lot of people default to that because they don't, rec- they don't recognize that an unbeliever needs to give an answer and yet they can't, they can't give a real answer, okay? So the believer, though, I would say also ask a question, but they also are in a position to give the truth. Right from the very video with Art saying that if you're a Christian, you have the truth and it is yours to make known. So what really would be easier to give an answer if you don't know the answer or you have the answer? It's easier to give an answer that you know the truth about it. And so to me, if you're thinking about that, when you're getting into a discussion back and forth, to me what's most helpful instead of I give a response to someone's question, right? They don't like it. So what generally happens is they come back with a host of questions, question after question without listening to me. So what I like to do is let's say, I'll tell you what, I kind of stop it. I say, let's just be fair, right? Typically, they'll respond positively because they say, I say, how about this? Let's be fair. You ask me a question, I'll answer it, and we'll do one question for one question. I'm not going to answer any other further question until you at least answer one of mine. And so it's kind of a one question for one question. That way, and typically what happens on a one-to-one, they see that that is fair. And what can also happen if you're speaking to a large group of people, they don't like your answer, and then their friend raises theirs, their friend, you know, it's not. And so you actually never get to the, the subject that you want to get to because they're asking rabbit trail questions. And so it's usually the person that's asking the question is directing and leading the conversation. So, but out of fairness, I would say just ask them. But tell them in advance what you're doing. You don't have to be sneaky. Just say, is it fair that we do a question for question and see how they respond? So, but um, I guess we, we're kind of ready to close up. Chris, if you want to end this in prayer. And again, real quickly, um, Again, as we're going through, again, you're probably going to have a lot of questions. You can write them down, and I'll try and address them. I have about five, six questions we didn't get to. So, But, Chris, if you would.